This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Mark Brandy, welcome back to Better Reading. Great to be with you, Cheryl. Oh, I'm loving having authors in the office. It's so nice to see people in person. Yeah, it makes a big difference to us authors too, actually, to be going out again and and talking to you guys. And, you know, we appreciate the support. Yeah, and connecting with booksellers, readers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's such a critical part of the publishing process, you know, Mm. and last time around... My book came out during lockdowns and it was just not the same. So it's great Mm. to be out again meeting readers, Mm. hearing what they think of the book. Do you think it's not the same in that you don't get that direct feedback, that you're not feeling what the audience is feeling after they've read the book? Well, that's right, yeah. I mean, I I did some, like, quite a few online events, as a lot of authors did. And you you didn't get that that kind of energy Mm -hmm. that you you have face-to-face. And I'd have to say, like, it was really quite anticlimactic last time around. So Mm. this has been great to be able to do events again, to do a launch, you Mm. know, and to do interviews in the the flesh is just wonderful. Mm. Um, Okay, let me introduce... Let me introduce Mike Brandy. We're having a good old time here. Uh, Mark's best-selling novel, Wimmera, won the coveted British Crime Writers Association debut dagger and was named Best Debut at the 2018 Australia Indie Book Awards. It was also shortlisted for the Australian Book Industry Awards, Literary Fiction and Book of the Year and the Matt Ritchell Award for the New Writer of the Year. Oh, my goodness. I don't think I knew all of that. (laughs) Mark's second novel, The Rip, was published to critical acclaim again in 2019, and his third novel, The Others, was shortlisted for the Best Fiction Prize in 22 Ned Kelly Awards. So we're talking to him about his latest novel, Southern Aurora. It's an unforgettable story that shows how unforgiving small town life can be if you're from the other side of the tracks. Well, it kind of made me cry. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, well, it's the story of a kid named Jimmy who's mm. growing up on really the poorest street in mm. a small town in the 1980s. And when we meet him, life's about to change. His older brother's just about to get out of jail and there's this billy cart race at his school that he's absolutely desperate to win. Meanwhile, uh, his mum has a new boyfriend and mm. this guy's a bit erratic, has a bit of a short fuse. So Jimmy's extra careful to do everything right when he's at home. So the story is essentially about Jimmy's attempts to overcome his circumstances mm. and, and really some of the, the difficult life lessons he learns along the way. Heart-wrenching when children have to be adults. Mm, yeah. It? It's like that, I think they call it the parentification of children where they take on responsibilities beyond their years. And, and that's certainly true of Jimmy. You know, he's got 
this younger brother, Sam, as well, who has a disability, and Jimmy's very ca- caring mm. of him. Um, his mum has issues with alcohol mm. also, so it's not the easiest home environment for him, but it's all he's ever known. And, you know, he doesn't get much of a chance to be a kid, really. Mm. It wasn't... Uh, it, like, it wasn't an easy book to write in a lot of ways because he was in this very difficult circumstance. And when I'm writing, I'm kind of seeing the world through his eyes and, and living that experience. But I really loved this kid so much. I loved mm. Jimmy. And that really brought such joy to the writing process for me. Mm. I really, really enjoyed it. There was an intimacy about it, I found. Like, did you... Did you know people like that? Did you grow up like that? You know, tell me where it came because it was real and it was personal for me. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Look, I, I grew up in a, in a small town in, in Western Victoria. My circumstances were very different than Jimmy's. My my family was quite stable. Like we, we ran a small business in town. And actually through that, that business, which was a pub uh, that my, my mum and dad ran, I got to know people, you know, mm. from from all walks of life, and it was one of the great lessons, really, that my my late father um, passed on to me. I remember when he when I first started working behind the bar at the pub, and I was a very introverted young man, and I was terrified of working yeah. behind the bar. It was the last thing I wanted so to do. So much pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, he he said to me talk to people because everyone Mm. has a story. It doesn't Mm. matter. Don't make a judgment about them by the way they look. Mm. Just listen to them because everyone's got a story. And that was a great life lesson. And I got to know, you know, people from all walks of life Mm. that way. Mm. And one of the things that really struck me is that that he was right, that everyone does have a, a story and sometimes the, the judgments we make based on how someone looks or how they present can be very, very misleading. And when you listen to to their life um, and their life story, often it was one bad thing happened and that threw them off the rails and because of their circumstances, it was very hard to mm. come back from that. So I think I've always been interested in writing about people um, from the wrong side of the tracks to to some extent. Mm. I think that that's been a theme in all my books, but in Southern Aurora, that's really um, to the foreground rather than the background. Mm. So I guess that was part of the driver for me writing it. The other thing is that I I guess I'm, I'm conscious of the growing disadvantage in our community too, because we're now, you know, more unequal than most countries in the OECD. Housing is becoming more unaffordable. The gaps between the wealthy and the poor are widening. So even though this book is set in 1986, these issues are more critical now than what mm. they were back then. So I guess that's the the atmosphere that I'm writing into and, mm. and those issues bleed into my work. Mm. It's not something I, I sit down and I'm conscious of and go, you know, I want to write about this issue and this issue and this issue. It just comes out through the characters. So, mm. um, Do you yeah. know, we, we live in silos. I mean, we all do. And, and, you know, I live in a silo of privilege. I've got a great job, you know. Yeah, I mean... It wasn't always. I mean, I was uh, the the child of migrant parents and and life was really hard for us when we were little, but fun, you know, Mm. very poor, but fun. But very recently, just a few weeks ago now, 
I ended up in hospital, in a public hospital, and firstly via emergency, right? And I've never oh. been there, never done that, you know, first time ever. And wow, did I come out of my silo. Mm. I mean, the people I saw in emergency and hundreds of people, I couldn't believe that this was five minutes from where I live and where have I been? Why mm. haven't I been looking around? But I guess post-COVID, you know, people were not out of out and about as we used to be. And also we kind of tend to hang out with like people, you know. Then my family were really pushing for me to go to a private ward, but it was a public hospital and I didn't want that. So I trusted the system. I wanted to go through the system. And I ended up in a room of four people. Mark, I can't, and I was there for a long time. Mm. So most people were only in there one or two nights. So I saw a lot of people come and go. Mm. And I think I spoke to every single one of them. One, I wanted to get out of myself and my own problem. But two, I wanted to hear their stories. And one of the ones was the one that's just really touched me. She was a young girl. She was only about 20. She had some kind of addiction. I couldn't work out what. Maybe it was methadone. It seemed to be a prescription addiction. And she was screaming and crying, beautiful young thing, but mm. screaming and crying day in, day out and really annoying all the other three people. <laughs> but she broke my heart because she couldn't stop. And I noticed at one point she would stop crying and stop being in herself when you asked her to do something, when the nurse would say to her, you know, you need to get up and do this, this and that. So I started giving her jobs. Like, you know, can you go and get my slippers, please? Can you go and get my... <laughs> Not that I wanted any of it, right? Mm. But just to keep her distracted yeah. for, say, 10 minutes to be out of her own misery. She was mm. so sad. But, you know, when I came to leave, that girl said to me, because I left before she did, she came up and she said, Cheryl, can I give you a hug? And mm. I said, absolutely. And she said, Cheryl, who's going to get all your stuff now? <laughs> 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 I will never forget that. Yeah. And that's, they're people that, yeah, you live in a silo. Absolutely. You know, you've got to find them yeah. and you've got to tell their stories. Well, I mean, good on you for embracing her in that way. I'm mm. sorry to hear you had that, that mm. health scare, but it, it is a real, the public health system is an eye opener. It's the same it in Melbourne. Really is. I've been in emergency a few times with my, my parents and yeah, my God, it's it's really... All walks of life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think we do... We, we live in a, with a lot of privilege in our lives. We do. And we take a hell of a lot for granted as mm. well. And particularly the kind of safety nets that are there for us. You know, if, exactly. if things go wrong or if we get sick, mm. you know, we can have sick leave. Well, I and, had choices. Yeah, that's I, right. I didn't have to stay there, you know. Mm. Yeah, but a lot of people don't. They're no. waiting and waiting. No, yeah. that's right. That's right. And I think... You know, in, in for for young children too, who are mm. in very difficult circumstances, mm. those early years of our lives are so crucial mm. and formative to mm. the people we become. Mm. So, if in those first, you know, five to ten years, we have a a kind of um, traumatic experience or things are very difficult at home, that will impact us right through into adulthood mm. and the kind of choices that, that we make. Mm. So I kind of think, well, I, I hope anyway that when people read read stories like, like Jimmy's or have experiences like you've just explained, that you walk away from those and think... Mm. 
firstly, man, I'm pretty lucky in my, my experience of the world, but also to have a degree of empathy for others as well, because sometimes the, the kind of situation they've found themselves in, it isn't about just bad choices. It's about no choice mm. at times because mm. things can just be very, very difficult. Mm. And, you know, I experienced uh, the other side of that too when I was working in the justice system mm. and I've still got family members who, who work for Victoria Police. Can you tell tell our listeners what you used to do before yeah. you started writing? Yeah, sure. I I studied um, criminal justice uh, and I, I worked at the Justice Department in, in Victoria for about 10 years and I did a variety of different jobs there, really interesting jobs in, in policy and projects, but also I worked as a ministerial advisor to the corrections minister for mm -hmm. a few years. Mm -hmm. And so I got to know the prison system very intimately mm -hmm. and and saw the inside of, of every prison in Victoria and one of the things that became very apparent early on is that the same cohort basically cycle through that mm. system again and again mm. and again. It becomes a way of life, doesn't it? Well, it does. And if you have that early contact with the justice system, mm. it tends to continue throughout your life. Mm. And often we would say in our office, um, we'd never say this publicly, um, but the prisons were essentially a, a warehouse for the the poor mm. and sometimes the mentally ill mm. and people who had addiction problems. Mm. And why, sh you know, this the whole thing with addiction, they shouldn't be in that criminal system at all. They should be in a health system. No, that's right. And, and mm. I think, you know, in I know in Victoria now because my, my partner works in the county court and they have a, a drug court model. So they mm. try to divert people away mm. from the correctional mm. environment. But it's so hard and, and some of these issues are so complex. But I think at the root of it is th this fundamental disadvantage that occurs in our society mm. and so many people who are left behind. Mm. And I I think that we can all sort of take a different approach and, and not just in our kind of political choices or um, our judgments about policies and things like that, but how we deal with people day to day mm. and not to look away. And as mm. you did, to actually mm. talk to people mm -hmm. um, who are from a different circumstance than you find yourself in. Mm. It's an enriching experience because as well. Because I'm not going to meet those people anywhere else. You know, that was it for me. Yeah. You know? But it was, it was such an eye-opener. Now tell me, how did you then go from there to writing or thinking about writing or you had already started thinking about it when you were working for 10 years? Well, I, I always loved writing, you know, yeah. and I loved writing when I was a, a kid at school and I loved books. And I remember I had a, a teacher in, in grade six in um, 502 primary school in Stall, uh, Mr McCann, and he really saw something in my writing and he sent me away on a, a writer's camp, which is a very big deal at the time. And so that was really the first time. It was fantastic. That, oh, it was great. Yeah. And I, I thought, wow, you, you could mm. be a writer. This is mm. amazing. But then kind of reality intervenes. And, you know, growing up in a country town, the local businesses were um, the abattoir. There was a gold mine in town. Mm. Or you could work in the family business in the pub. 
And so my parents being like migrant parents too were um, very keen for me to get a, a good education and a good job. Were they born here or were they? No, born... they were born in Italy. I was oh, born right. in Italy as well. Oh, so right. yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, we were kind of the outsiders in mm-hmm. this small town. But um, writing still was it like <laughs> it was still in my heart mm. and, and all the jobs that I had writing was at the core of what I was doing as well, mm. even in that ministerial advisor role. And so I, I kind of got to a point, I was a little bit of a crusader, I guess. I When I went to work in government and work in the Justice Department, I did it because I wanted to make a difference mm. and, and that was what drove me. And I suppose working in the political environment, I quickly learned that, you know, I was probably a little bit naive mm. about how things I think work. a lot of people feel that way. Yeah, yeah. and there's a lot of compromise yeah. that happens. Mm. And so, well, you're making deals all the time, this for that, and you're giving away this, take, I mean... That's right, that's right. Is that, worse that, than a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Um, but it's it's kind of, as I think they, they say, um, you shouldn't let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. And mm. so there's always this compromise that happens and I wasn't quite ready for that, I think. And so I, I got a little bit disenchanted and, mm. and so I, I ended up going part-time at work and then starting a writing course. And So you had, you kind of made a decision, I'm going to give this a go. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Yeah. It reached yeah. a point where I thought, I have to give this a yeah, shot yeah, here. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a bit of a risk because I had a mortgage at that stage. And yeah. so I, I didn't know what was going to happen. Wow. Yeah. Um, that is a risk. Yeah. yeah. But, but luckily, you know, I've been able to kind of cobble together a living and, and, mm. and write. And mm. I, I feel incredibly lucky to mm. do that. It's not as lucrative, you know, as what um, my old career was, but I'm a hell of a lot happier and I really love what I do. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So you wrote your first book, Wimmera. And how was that process? Like, you know, it's one thing wanting to write and one thing knowing what the story is even, but getting to a publish, you know, getting published is another story, mm, isn't it? Yeah. So how did you navigate that? Ooh, I, um, I was, again, completely naive, mm. uh, which in hindsight was probably a good thing. Mm. And so... Wimra was quite a complex book to write because mm. it had these shifts in time, shifts in, it was close third person perspective, but shifts in perspective. And I, I think looking back on it, if I 
knew what I knew now. Attempting a book like that as my debut was a, was a big ask, but ambitious. Yeah, very ambitious. And I, <laughs> why not? Yeah, and I, I gave it a crack, and I, I thought, hang on, I've, I think I've I've got something here, and I sent it off to some agents, and and luckily, and you just googled them. Yeah, googled yeah. them, and I was. I got rejected by a number of them, as happens, mm. and mm. I was lucky enough that uh, one picked me out of the slush pile mm. and said, you know, I think this has got promise. So we reworked the manuscript and it went on uh, submission uh, to all the major publishers, all of whom passed on it, mm. and then went to the smaller publishers. They all passed on it. <laughs> uh, so it, it really it took a long time to get it over the line, mm. and I'd have to say... Winning the debut dagger, the the UK uh, Writing Award, was a, a crucial moment because at that time, certainly, Australian crime, which was kind of literary crime, Wimmera was classified as, wasn't selling in the way that, that it is now. So Jane Harper's book changed a lot mm-hmm. uh, of that, that mm-hmm. dynamic. So I think a, a, pu- a lot of publishers looked at it and thought, hang on, we can we can mm-hmm. make this work. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, it was a bit like, mm, Australian crime, don't know. Mm-hmm. Don't know if we can make that fly. I think too, I'm not surprised you said that because that it was rejected by all because it's almost genreless as well. Mm. And we love, and, you know, I'm guilty of it as well, we love to put books in you know, silo them or yeah. put them in genres. But do you know, readers don't care. Yeah, yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely you, right. Readers don't care. It's us publishers, it's us marketers, it's us, you know, that are talking about books that like to put them in category. Now, with Better Reading, hundreds and hundreds of comments on Facebook since we've, you know, we're, I think we're nearly nine years old. Mm. No one talks about genre. They mm. talk about story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yours is unique in that it's not really strictly crime, is it? No, no. No. And, and, you know, when I sat... And I think that that would have been the challenge for them at the time. I think that's right. And when I sat down to write it, I... And and this is true of um, my writing since, too. I I, I never think about genre. No. It doesn't come into my mind. I'm thinking about character. I'm thinking about story. Mm. And about trying to make it work, Mm. you know. And I... Prior to Wimmera being published, I'd never read a crime mm. novel. And so when my fantastic publisher, Hachette, uh, started marketing Wimmera and saying, if you, if you loved the dry, you will love mm. um, Wimmera, I thought, oh, no, I'd better go out and read the dry very quickly <laughs> and read a lot of crime novels because I had, I had no idea. Um, I Who thought, was your inspiration in terms of reading growing up? Gee, I, I loved Stephen King, I have yeah, to wow. say. Yeah, wow. my, my, well, your books are nothing like that. No, I know. <laughs> well, my, my oldest brother, um, see, we, our, our house wasn't a, a kind of um, literary household in any no. way. My, no. my parents were working class people and um, they encouraged us to get a good education. That was mm. the main thing. Mm. But my brothers were readers. So yeah. my eldest brother, he was a big Stephen King wow. fan. So I used to pick up his... I shouldn't have been reading them at that <laughs> age, really. I was picking up, you know, Salem's Lot and <laughs> Carrie and... I could never do it. It's too scary Terrifying. Yeah. And they still scare me now. Yeah. Like yeah. I read, reread Salem's Lot recently and it was still scary. Mm. And my next eldest brother, he was... He was writing to kind of classic literature. So the, the first uh, book that he bought me from Readings in Carlton, I remember I 
went up and stayed with him in Cardigan Street in Carlton. He was living in a share house. Is he, was he that much older than you? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there was quite a big age gap. So my eldest brother was like 14 years older than me. So And were they born in Italy and came uh, No, they were born in Australia. So uh, my parents okay. had went gone back. back and, yeah, Got that it. was when I yep. was born. And he bought me uh, Great Expectations. Wow. Yeah, as my first kind of adult <gasps> book. Mm. And I loved it. Philip Pirrup, this, <laughs> this kind of, this world I, I knew nothing about. And it was just an amazing story. And then my, my next eldest brother, Gary, he, he was quite into comic books. Mm. He read a lot of like mm. uh, dystopian UK mm. 2000 AD and, and um, comic mm. books like that, which were great stories yeah. in there, really, yeah, really yeah. vivid uh, and creative. I, I, you know, I was only thinking about comics the other day and I was thinking about Tintin and all those. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love Tintin, yeah. yeah. And, and Asterix. They, and, yes, yeah. and Asterix. And also that there were such good because I was a bookseller for a long time, mm. they were so good for reluctant readers. Mm. And boy, you know, at the time, getting, you know, young men into reading, they That's were the true. ones you'd go for. That's true, yeah, because yeah. even thinking about in, in high school, you know, my mates still read Tintin yeah. as well. Like yeah, yeah. There was no shame in no, doing that at all. No, there's never been any shame in reading any comic, I don't think. Yeah, no, that's yeah. true, that's true. And, and the other thing, actually, one of my brothers read was um, they were called fighting fantasy books, which were kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure-style right. Dungeons and Dragons type thing. So I had these really diverse sort yeah. of influences <laughs> in my life. Um, but but reading was, was definitely there and and seen as something, you know, good to be doing. And so all the siblings readers? Because that's unusual. Yeah. 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 yeah, They they, they all were. They were and continue to be, which is a a great thing. And Um, only one writer. Only one writer. Yeah. That's all we need, I think. (laughs) Do you you get nervous about your siblings reading your books? Uh, A little. Mm. A little, Mm. yeah. Because they're personal. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, there's elements of our our past in mm. the, in in these stories. Mm. You know, even in this new book, Southern Aurora, in the prologue, there's a story about a, a dog named Tippy, and we had a dog named Tippy when I was yeah. growing up. So I've kind of sought to honour him in the book. But even some of the the cars in in this um, in this story, there's a, a valiant pacer, um, <laughs> which Jimmy's older brother Mick drives, and we used to have a pacer. And Charlie drives a Kingswood. We used to have a Kingswood, and there's elements of kind of. Uh, our sort of shared history in in this book. So I know they'll be able to see these things when they read it. Do they ever say, because, you know, I mean, memory is so unreliable. Do they ever say, oh, that's not quite right. It didn't happen that way. It happened this way. No, I think they they appreciate that it is it right. is fiction and yeah. that I've, I've kind of, I, I take certain liberties with, with the stories. <laughs> yes. Um, if like, Probably they're thankful of that, that I'm not writing memoir or anything like that. So, I'll, I'll, well, I won't say never that I'll write a memoir, but um, I think they'd be be more nervous in that situation. Yeah. So you're a full-time writer now. Mm. Um, and tell me, what does a writer's day look like? What does your writer's day look like? A good day. Yeah, say. good day. Well, it, it's it's changed over time, I would say. At the beginning, after Wimmera came out, I felt very, um, I felt a lot of pressure, yeah. really, yeah, to, yeah. to be producing and to write something quickly and to get it out in the world. Uh, um, it's such, it's so tough for first-time authors because if your book does well, tremendous pressure. Mm. If your book doesn't do well, 
tremendous pressure. Yeah, that's right. That <laughs> so is true. You've got nowhere to go. That is true. Unless you just turn your back on the whole thing, yeah. um, which which very few people would do. Yeah. Um, and I would say, like that pressure was was very much self imposed mm. too. It wasn't as though the publisher or my agent was no. saying, you know, you yeah. need to to do this um, bit of kind of pyrotechnics for your next book. <laughs> um, it was just, it was very much on my own shoulders and I probably took it to the extreme, you know. I, I don't think I I had the healthiest balance in my life. Mm-hmm. Like I was just, at any spare moment I'd be working. Like my partner and I would go away for a few days and I'd still have to spend time while we're, we're away working or editing and things like that. Not popular. Not popular at all. No. <laughs> and, and not not good good for you either because no. I think you need to be living life a little bit. Mm. Um, to get a, the stories. That's it. That's yeah. it. So nowadays I think I, I've, I've got a little bit more of a, yeah, a, a healthier attitude and I, I try to balance... Um, time with family and with friends, recreation, exercise, with So writing. do you do like a nine-to-five approach or a word approach or no? No, no. So when I'm, when I'm drafting, I'm a bit of a late riser, so I probably don't get to the desk until maybe uh, midday. I'll, yeah, wow. I'll be procrastinating in yeah. the morning and cleaning yeah. the house or whatever. Which I now kind of generously say is part of my process. Yeah. But um, uh, when I get to the desk, I will we'll work solidly while I suppose the um, the inspiration is there, usually for two to three hours. So mm-hmm. that might be a thousand words. It could be two thousand words. It just yeah. depends. And I try to leave the manuscript at a moment where I'm kind of still feeling excited about what's happen, what's mm-hmm. going to happen next, and that's mm-hmm. when I stop. Uh, because then the next day when I go to it, I'm kind of really motivated to go back into the story. But I, I find I have to have continuity in those early drafting mm. stages. So I have to be working on it every day. Mm. And part of that, I think, is just my bad memory. Like mm. I lose threads of where I was at. Mm. So I, I need to just stay with it. And when I'm in that early drafting stage, I really, as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm kind of inside that world and I'm seeing uh, the world through the character's eyes. Mm. So it is very experiential for me, uh, very draining as well, but that's kind of my method. And then when I move into the editing stage or the rewriting stage, I don't have to be as kind of dogged Mm. about being at it every single day. I can have mm. some gaps in between. So this novel, Southern Aurora, I actually started it back in 2015. So it was wow. eight years ago. It was after I finished uh, Wimra, yeah. but Wimra hadn't been published yet. And I'd kind of gotten it to a point where I thought it was finished, but it still wasn't doing the things I really wanted it to do. Mm. And so I, I parked it and basically just put it in the bottom drawer. And it was really in the the lockdowns, actually, um, yeah, that I had another look at it and thought, mm. hang on, there's something in mm. this. It was partly, I think, a bit of life experience and a bit of writing experience too in mm. the intervening years that I could I could find a way to make it make it mm. work. And, and so, you knew how to solve the problem. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I, I well, with, with with the help of my editor, of, of course, course yeah. um, but. You know, I found this this process one of the most satisfying in many ways for that mm. reason because I, I 
taken something which I thought it had some kind of beauty there, but it wasn't wasn't complete. And to get that to the point of completion is just. Um, yeah, it was just really satisfying. Okay, we're out of time. I could talk for another hour, Mark. Wonderful to chat with you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it was a pleasure, Cheryl, always. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.